I sometimes wonder what would happen if one Sunday, out of the blue, Jesus were to visit our church. I hope he'd get a visitor's packet. That's why we have them. But I wonder, what would he find? And would he like what he found? Would he recognize this church as a structure built upon the foundation which he himself established? Would he identify us as a branch organically connected to him, the true vine? Would he be pleased with the way that we speak of him? Would he affirm the way that we handle his word? The way we teach his word? The way that we respond to his word? Would he enjoy our worship? Would he say that we approach this gathering of the worship and the word of preaching and of praise with due reverence for God, with God-centered anticipation and spirit-wrought joy, or would he find a group of religious people going through the motions on a Sunday morning? This is not an insignificant question, and it's not a hypothetical question. You remember a couple of years ago when we studied the book of Revelation, we saw that Jesus indeed visited seven churches of Asia Minor, churches that were not so different from ours. They were local congregations of baptized believers who gathered regularly for worship in the Word, just like we are. And Jesus sent each of these seven churches letters which opened with the words, I know your works. Letters that displayed an intimate knowledge of the inner workings of the church, of their conduct, of their character, of their conviction regarding the truth. And as you remember, in many of those churches, what Jesus found was not at all pleasing to him. So you can be sure that Jesus visits his churches. Revelation 2.1 identifies him as him who stands or walks in the midst of the golden lampstands, which are the churches. He walks in their midst. He is not a negligent shepherd. He is a good shepherd, and a good shepherd keeps a close watch over his sheep. Another way to ask this question is to turn it around and say, if Jesus were to visit our church, would we recognize him? Is the Jesus that we speak about and sing about and think about the true and living Christ? I want us to ponder these questions as we approach today's passage because in Mark 21 to 28, Jesus visits an Old Testament church, a synagogue, in the town of Capernaum in Galilee. And while the people were astonished at him, only one in the congregation recognized him for who he truly was, and that was a demon. John MacArthur writes, quote, Ironically, in the first half of Mark's gospel, the only being sure of Jesus' true identity were the demons. The Jewish leaders rejected him. The crowds were curious, but largely uncommitted. And even his disciples exhibited a lingering hard-heartedness. But the demons knew for certain. When Jesus walked into the synagogue in Capernaum that Sabbath day, he was walking into a congregation not unlike ours, in its outward forms at least. They too gathered weekly to read the scriptures, to hear them expounded, 
They too gathered weekly to sing praise and to pray as a congregation. They too were deeply religious people raised in the Jewish faith from birth. And yet, when Jesus walked into their midst, only one recognized him, and he was demonic. The synagogue of Capernaum, evidently, was a church of people who did not know their God. That's why John said he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. They did not receive him because they did not recognize him. They did not know their God, and therefore they did not recognize Him when He came among them in the flesh. But the demons knew, and they trembled. This morning, I want us to walk with Mark through this Sabbath day in Capernaum, and I want us to watch Jesus closely, observe what He says and what He does, so that if, when, Jesus visits our church, we not only will recognize him, but we'll receive him with reverence and with joy. On this one Sabbath day in Capernaum, evidently Jesus' first Sabbath day in Capernaum, he does three things worth noting. Number one, Jesus teaches. And when he taught, it was unlike anything the people had ever heard. Mark begins his description of this Sabbath day in verse 21. He writes, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Capernaum was a city on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Most of its inhabitants were Jews who labored as fishermen or farmers or artisans or merchants. Capernaum enjoyed some political influence due to its location and its prosperity. And due to its political affluence and influence, it had a customs office manned by tax collectors, one of whom was a man named Levi or Matthew. We'll meet him in the next chapter. And it hosted a small Roman garrison. It was a town that was not out of the way. It was a town of importance in the region of Galilee. Capernaum enjoyed some degree of affluence due to its fertile farmland and its abundant fishing industry. In fact, they were so wealthy that in the 4th century AD, they built an impressive synagogue out of imported white limestone rather than the black basalt out of which all the rest of the structures of Capernaum were constructed. This 4th century synagogue has been excavated And its remains can be visited today. If you go to the town of Capernaum, you can go to the synagogue of Capernaum. But the synagogue which you will visit is not the synagogue in which Jesus taught. It was built in the 4th century. But in 1969, as they were doing some excavation at the site of the synagogue, they found that the 4th century synagogue was built over the pre-existing synagogue, and that was the location of Mark chapter 1. And today, if you visit Capernaum and the synagogue at Capernaum, you can see dug out the very floor on which the Lord of glory stood as the events of Mark chapter 1 took place. A Jewish synagogue was and is more like a local church than the Jerusalem temple. The temple was the place 
where the priests ministered and the sacrifices were offered, and there was only one in all the world, in Jerusalem, the holy city. But a synagogue was a local assembly hall, and it was the domain not of the priests and the sacrifices, but of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Torah. The scribes and the Pharisees were the rulers, the leaders of the synagogue. That was their realm, and it was where they expounded the scriptures for the Jewish people. Synagogues could and can be found throughout the Mediterranean world and throughout the world today. In fact, there's one in Springfield. Anywhere where there are 10 or more Jewish males, ages 13 or more, there is an authorized synagogue, or can be an authorized synagogue. But by the time of the first century, and particularly after the temple was destroyed in the year 70, the synagogue became the center of Jewish life outside of Jerusalem. It functioned in a Jewish community, no matter where it was. It functioned as the place of worship, the local meeting hall, the local school, and the local courtroom. It was a very important place. Evidently, Jesus had already gained a reputation by this time as a rabbi and a teacher because on this particular Sabbath, the congregation invites him to to teach. It's not that he just comes out of nowhere and they have no idea who he is. They wouldn't have invited him to teach any more than we would let somebody off the street just come in and teach. They guarded their pulpit just as carefully as we guard ours. And so Jesus was known to them. He had gained a reputation as someone who had, a, who had a distinct knowledge of the Scriptures and an ability to expound them. But when Jesus began that day, the congregation quickly realized that they had gotten more than they had bargained for. Mark doesn't record the content of Jesus' sermon. We can assume what he did, though, on the basis of what we find him doing in other synagogues and other places in the Gospels like the synagogue of Nazareth in Luke chapter 4, where he called for the scroll of Isaiah, opened it up to the 61st chapter, read it, and then expounded it. That's likely what he did here. He called for a scroll and expounded the text for the congregation that was there. But Mark is not so concerned with what Jesus taught as he is with how Jesus taught. It was unlike anything the people had ever heard. Mark describes it in this way. He says they were utterly astonished at his teaching. Why? Well, Mark, who himself heard Jesus teach on occasion, describes the difference in that Jesus taught, quote, as one who had authority and not as the scribes. What does that mean? Well, we'll get to the bottom of what Mark means by looking very closely at those two words found in verse 22, astonished and authority. Mark says that the people in the synagogue in Capernaum were astonished at Jesus' teaching. Scott, it's time for the Greek word of the day. You ready? All right. Astonished translates the Greek word ekplaso. Now, you don't need to remember what the Greek word is, but you do need to remember what it means because it's very important to this text. William Lane remarks that this word conveys more than a positive sense of amazement. When you hear the word astonished, you may think, oh, they were amazed at his teaching. It's more than that. He says it also conveys a real sense of alarm. 
He writes, the response to Jesus' words and deeds has overtones of fear and alarm. It reflects an awareness of the disturbing character of his presence. In other words, the people's astonishment at Jesus' teaching was mingled with no small degree of fear and panic. William Barclay translated it as the word as thunderstruck. I like that. They were thunderstruck at his teaching. This was not teaching that was intended to tickle the ears or to satisfy intellectual curiosity. This was the exposition of the Holy Scriptures that left the congregation deeply disturbed, yet profoundly intrigued. And Mark tells us why. He says it was different from the teaching to which they were accustomed, the teaching of the scribes and of the Pharisees. He says Jesus taught as one with authority. How's that different from the way that the scribes taught? Kent Hughes says that the scribes were in bondage to quotation marks. What they would do is to read the scripture, and then they would just begin quoting what various rabbis said concerning the scripture, its meaning, and its application, offering nothing new and offering, here's the important point, nothing personal. In other words, their, their sermons largely consisted of mere quotations recited from rabbinic tradition. That's why Hughes calls it secondhand theology. It was theoretical. It was abstract. It stayed up here in this realm. It was, therefore, safe. It never addressed the heart or the experience of the people nor of the teacher. It was moralism. It was formalism. It was dead. As dead as the congregation which it addressed. Then, one Sabbath day, in walks Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, who has no interest in the theoretical or the abstract, and he has little regard for the tradition of the elders, but he has the highest respect for the Holy Scriptures and for their power and their authority over the lives and the hearts of men. Listen to William Lane. He says, Jesus' word presented with a sovereign authority which permitted neither debate nor theological or theoretical reflection confronted the congregation with the absolute claim of God upon their whole person. Jesus' teaching recalled the categorical demand of the prophets rather than scribal tradition. In contrast with rabbinic exposition with its reference to the tradition of the elders, here was prophecy. It's no wonder the people were thunderstruck. It's no wonder they were disturbed to the depths of their souls. It's no wonder they were astonished and alarmed. Jesus, when he stepped into the synagogue at Nazareth, he removes the double-edged sword of the scripture from the sheath of scribal tradition and he wielded it with a devastating precision. And their hearts burned with conviction and truth. See, the scribes had turned the law into a ladder by which they may climb into heaven by their own righteousness and their own careful observance and yet remain in their hearts unrepentant, unresponsive, and unregenerate. But when Jesus preached the law, 
He exposed the wickedness of men's hearts and their desperate need of repentance and of mercy and of new birth. Jesus taught with a penetrating insight and a devastating application. In other words, he taught with authority. And the people were alarmed. In the previous section, we covered it last week, Jesus had called Peter and Andrew and James and John and he had promised to make them fishers of men. You see that down in verse 17. Well, the very next thing that Mark records is Jesus taking these same four disciples into the synagogue where they watch him teach. Evidently, this is how you fish for men. You teach with authority. You preach with authority. Haiti mission team, you stand on doorsteps and you present the gospel with authority. That's what it means to fish for men. And Jesus was modeling it for his disciples who then went and did likewise for the remainder of their lives. God forbid that we at First Baptist Nixa ever settle for less than this type of preaching. Preaching that is passionate in its tone, reverent in its posture, precise in its truth, and incisive in its application. Anything less is not biblical preaching. God forbid that we ever be a place, or cease to be a place rather, where unbelievers Even religious unbelievers are disturbed by our preaching. That's good. We don't want them to be comfortable. We don't want them to feel at home under the word. And God forbid that we ever be a place where Christians from time to time are not profoundly disturbed by the word. That's how sanctification happens. That's how the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and works in us, addresses us in our sin, and works in us repentance that leads to everlasting life. When Jesus teaches, He teaches with sovereign authority and people are astonished slash alarmed. When was the last time you were alarmed at the preaching of the word? That's how you know Jesus is addressing you. When Jesus teaches, he teaches with authority. Now, while the authoritative teaching of Christ provoked alarm and astonishment in the congregation that day, it provoked a different reaction in someone else. It provoked agony. Verse 23, and immediately there was in the synagogue, immediately, in the synagogue there was a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I think it's perhaps illustrative of the spiritual condition of the synagogue at Capernaum that there was a demon-possessed man present who seemed to be quite comfortable in their worship service, not creating a disturbance until Jesus got up to speak. 
It is, however, not surprising given the witness of the rest of the New Testament to the spiritual state of first century Jewish synagogues. Remember Revelation 2.9 and 3.9 where Jesus speaks to the churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia and says that the synagogues in those cities are synagogues of Satan. See, if the Holy Spirit had been present in their worship, then unclean spirits would not be. And so when the one upon whom the Holy Spirit descended and remained, Mark 1.10, began to preach, this unholy spirit could abide it no longer. It immediately felt threatened, sensing that the one who was destined to destroy the demons had stepped into its domain. And so, in what I imagine to be an otherworldly voice, it cried out in hatred and fear, what have you to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus' response was swift and stern. Verse 25, but Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. When the Holy One of God commands, the demons have no choice but to obey. Even in its state of rebellion, this creature has no choice but to heed the sovereign command of its creator. So it threw its host upon the ground in convulsions, it shrieked in hatred, and it departed, leaving the man lying limp there on the synagogue floor. And once again, the congregation was stunned. Verse 27. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Even though it's a different Greek word from before, I won't won't give it to you because I only get one a day. The word translated amazed there at the end of this passage, it once again conveys more than just awe. Conveys a sense of fear. That's why Lane translated it alarmed. The synagogue crowd was frightened by this stunning display of sovereign authority, both in the heart-piercing teaching of Jesus and then in his absolute authority over the demonic realm. They're afraid of him. I want you to imagine what Sabbath day lunch and the conversation that took place over it was like that day. Imagine discussing that service after church. Before we move on to the next event on this Sabbath day, I want to take a moment and I want to explore what it is about Jesus that provokes these dual reactions. Amazement, astonishment, Alarm, agony. What is it about Jesus? Why could the demon not remain silent and hidden in the presence of Christ? Why couldn't it just keep its mouth shut and remain unseen? Why did the crowds question among themselves, who is this, and then spread his story all around the region of Galilee? I think the answer is found in the title of this message, which I got from the way the demon addresses Jesus. I know who you are. You are the Holy 
one of God. Underline the word holy. It was the holiness of Jesus that provoked these responses. See, when the Holy One comes near to unholy people or unholy spirits, they can't abide His presence. And a cacophony of emotions are provoked. Fear, hatred, agony. It creates, I love this phrase, it creates what R.C. Sproul called in his fantastic book, The Holiness of God, a trauma of holiness. It's traumatic when unholy people are confronted by the Holy Christ. Last week we noted Jesus' calling of Peter and his brother Andrew and his two friends James and John. Now Mark's account of that event is rather tame and abbreviated. But Luke's account adds some very interesting detail. Let me tell you about it. Luke says that on that occasion when Jesus called Peter that Jesus was actually preaching the word of God by the Sea of Galilee when he saw two boats, okay? that of Peter and Andrew and that of James and John. And because the crowd that was listening to him was growing large and unmanageable and was pressing up against him, he got into one of the boats, it happened to be Peter's, and he asked Peter to put out a little way from the shore. And Jesus then continued to preach to the crowds while I guess Peter sat down in the boat and listened. Jesus provoked a reaction, presumably in the crowd, but he definitely got a reaction out of Peter. And the reaction of Peter was exactly the same as the reaction of the congregation in Capernaum. Disturbed astonishment. After Jesus finished preaching, Jesus told Simon to put out a little further from the shore and to let down his nets. Simon protested that they had been fishing all night long, hadn't caught anything, but he did it anyway. And when he hauled the net back into the boat, it was bursting at the seams with fish. This was a stunning display of holy sovereignty. It wasn't about fish. It wasn't about making up for his time and and giving him a little payday for helping him out. It was about displaying his holiness and his sovereignty. And that act, combined with the soul-piercing words that Peter had just heard Jesus preached, proved too much for Peter and he was undone. Luke 5.8 says this, When Simon Peter saw it, the hall of fish, He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Depart from me. I can't take it anymore. It's, It's like someone who can't stare into the sun. That's what it's like for an unholy person to be confronted by the holy Christ. R.C. Sproul comments on this passage, he says, At that moment, Peter realized that he was in the presence of the Holy Incarnate. He was desperately uncomfortable. His initial response was one of worship. He fell to his knees before Christ, but instead of saying something like, Lord, I adore you. Lord, I magnify you. He said, please go away. Please leave. I can't stand it anymore. We notice that Jesus 
had not been lecturing Peter about his sins. That's what's interesting. Jesus had not been lecturing Peter about his sins. There was no rebuke. There was no word of judgment. All Jesus did was show Peter how he caught fish. But when the holy is manifested, no words are needed to express it. Peter got a message that was impossible to miss. The transcendent standard of all righteousness and all purity blazed before his eyes. And like Isaiah, Peter was undone. You ever been confronted by the holiness of Jesus? You would know if you had. Have you ever been undone at the preaching of the word? Not my words, his words coming through my mouth or the mouth of someone who's preaching the word and the power of the spirit to you. When Jesus addresses us in our sins, there is no other reaction but to be undone. It may happen as you listen to the word preached. It may happen as you listen to the words sung. It may happen in your own personal Bible reading. But whenever it happens, it is a deeply traumatic experience and it is anything but comfortable. But for those who know Christ, who know His grace, for those who take refuge in His atoning blood, which Christ shed in order that we may be shielded from His holiness, for those who embrace His imputed righteousness to cover our iniquity and our shame and our nakedness like a robe, like a garment as we stand before Him, it is uncomfortable, yes, but it's wonderfully uncomfortable. It is painful, yes, but it is painfully purifying. It is terrifyingly joyful. The holy presence of Christ cleanses, it it refines, it burns, it sanctifies, it purifies. The unclean must flee from the Holy One of God, but the righteous are drawn near like metal to a magnet. It's uncomfortable, yes, but you can't turn away. And when once it has happened, you find yourself wanting more uncomfortableness. And you find yourself praying really strange things like this at the beginning of a worship service. God, disturb me. Alarm me. Astonish me. Beloved, let's be a church where the Holy One of God is preached and worshipped and adored and followed in all of his wonderful and terrible majesty. Let us be a church that trembles before him even while we rejoice in him. Let's be like Peter who though initially begged that the Lord turn away from him because he couldn't take it anymore, then when Jesus asked him if he was going to leave, said, Lord, to whom shall I go? You have the words of eternal life, and I have come to know and believe that you are the Holy One of God. See, those who have been 
confronted by Jesus' holiness in a strange magnetism of the Spirit, fall in love with His holiness. It's hard to me, for me to imagine how their synagogue service ended. Jesus' teaching has left the congregation thunderstruck. A demon in their midst has made itself known. It's been summarily exercised by the authority of Christ's command. I mean, how, how'd they close that service, right? Uh, give the announcements and a benediction, I guess. I don't know how it ended, but I, am, I imagine that the congregation just sort of stared in terrified astonishment. And Jesus just simply got up and walked out with his disciples. According to James Edwards, quote, within a stone's throw of the Capernaum synagogue lies a structure that can be reasonably identified as the house of Peter, end quote. The house was a large complex with doors and windows that opened onto an interior court, so there were structures around an interior court. The interior court would have contained hearths for cooking, millstones to grind grain, and stairways leading up to the roofs of the exterior dwellings that were made of wood and thatch. Uh, This particular structure in Capernaum is, is there. You can go see it. On its walls, you will find sacred writings that have been scratched into the plaster, indicating that it very quickly after the first century became a place of Christian pilgrimage and a house of worship. Edwards continues, quote, there's a strong probability that the site preserves Peter's house. No site, incidentally, has been identified in Scripture or tradition as Jesus' house, and so it may be that Jesus lived with Peter in Capernaum. So verse 29, and immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve him. So when they arrive after the synagogue service, they arrive back at Peter's house. They immediately see that something's wrong. The household is in a stir. Peter's mother-in-law, likely the family matriarch, is in bed with a fever, Luke in his version, calls it a high fever, which was quite possibly a, a fatal illness, a fatal condition in an age before antibiotics. Something interesting to note in this encounter is that when Luke records it, he suggests that the fever was the result of demonic activity. In Luke 4.39, he says that Jesus rebuked the fever, which is a word that is used in close connection with exorcism. Uh, That may be reading too much into Luke's language, though, uh, because Peter, if you remember, was the primary source for Mark's gospel, and it's hard to imagine any son-in-law passing up the opportunity to describe his mother-in-law as being demon-possessed. But I digress. The point is that Jesus, with his absolute authority, forget I said that, (laughs) he healed her instantly and completely such that she immediately arose and began to serve them. And so the afternoon passes, and by the end of the Sabbath day, word had spread like a wildfire throughout all Capernaum and beyond. Look at verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. 
It's an eerie scene, is it not? Let's see if I can paint it for you. As soon as the sun sets and the Sabbath is over, the inhabitants of Simon's home, relaxing there in the courtyard, in the cool of the day, they begin to hear a clamor outside the courtyard gate. When they go out to investigate, there in the dying reddish light, they see a mass of misery and more flooding up the streets toward their house from every direction. There are people on crutches. There are people with fevers. There are people doubled over in pain. There are lepers wrapped in cloths. There are the blind led by the hand of a friend. And there are the demon-possessed, raving, growling, convulsing their hosts. And then Jesus steps out into the courtyard and into the street. And he surveys this scene of wretchedness and despair around him and something within him groans in fathomless compassion. And he begins to move throughout the crowd, cradling the the faces of the feverish in his hands, embracing the lepers, touching them, and holding them in his arms. Touching the the eyes of the blind and withered legs. And everywhere he turns in this crowd and everything that he touches is instantly restored. The power that called the universe into being is flowing out from him in every direction, bringing healing to bodies that have been ravaged by the curse. And every once in a while, the crowd parts And Jesus finds himself standing face to face with one whose body and face is contorted by a demon. And with a preternatural growl, the demon spits out words of venomous, quivering hatred toward him, only to be instantaneously silenced and expelled by the words and the thundering command of Christ, leaving their limp in the street, a man or a woman or a child to whom Jesus then extends a hand and helps them to their feet. And this scene continues hour after hour, late into the night, until Jesus finally dismisses the crowd and withdraws exhausted into the house, having healed all who came to him. That is your Savior. This is the second time that Mark mentions that Jesus commands the demons to silence in order that they not reveal his identity. He's going to issue the same command to the leper that he heals at the end of chapter 1. He's going to say the same thing to the parents of the dead girl that he raises to life in chapter 5, to the deaf man to whom he gives hearing in chapter 7, and even to his disciples in chapter 8. Why? Why won't he let anybody talk about him? Well, I think there are two primary reasons. The first is practical. Mark said in Mark 1.14 that John the Baptist has already been arrested, and so it's a politically charged climate in which Jesus is ministering, and there's a messianic fever that carried military as well as religious overtones, and Jesus wanted nothing to do with those overtones. That's not the kind of Messiah that he had come to be. But the second reason is theological. Especially in Mark's gospel, Jesus comes forth as the suffering servant of Isaiah. 
remember the one who came to give his life as a ransom for many, the one who in his coming was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That's the kind of Jesus or the kind of Messiah that Jesus came to be, and it was most definitely not the kind of Messiah that the people wanted and for whom they looked, and so he forbid both men and demons to speak about him until he was ready to reveal himself. James Edwards writes that until the consummation of Jesus' work on the cross, all speculations about him are premature. Only on the cross can Jesus rightly be known for who he is. Until the confession of the centurion, centurion on the cross in Mark 15, 39, all utterances about Jesus, especially those coming from members of the rebellion, demons, are either premature or they are false. And as we'll come to find out, Jesus had good reason for doubting that the people really understood who he was or the mission that he had come to accomplish because at the end of his Galilean ministry, this is what he's going to say about Capernaum, whose citizens he had healed of every disease and demonic oppression. Matthew eleven twenty three, 23, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works, these mighty works on this Sabbath day in Capernaum, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Evidently, miracles and healing and signs and wonders are not a sufficient ground for saving faith. The faith that saves must be born of something deeper and more lasting, namely, the true knowledge of who Jesus is, that is, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, the suffering servant, the Lord of all, and a true knowledge of what he has come to do, that is, to give his life as a ransom for many and to pay the redemption price for sinners." Any, any other kind of idea or understanding of Jesus is sub-Christian, false, and does not save, as evidenced by Capernaum. The incredible outpouring of compassion and healing power that evening in Capernaum demonstrates to us an important point, and it's with this that I'll end. Jesus heals all who come to him, but... Be warned by what happened in Capernaum. Jesus has not come primarily to heal the temporal illness of your physical body. He has come to restore the spiritual illness that rots in our soul. But the depth of his compassion is the same. Jesus heals all who come to him for the healing of their immortal souls. So if your soul is in need of healing this morning, you should in no wise doubt his willingness to save. He'll stay up all night long if need be. This is eternal life to know. This is the song we're going to sing in just a minute. This is eternal life to know the living God and Christ the Son. The Savior will not let us go until his saving work is done. Our debt was great as was our need, but now the price is paid. Who can behold Emmanuel bleed and doubt his willingness 
to save. Don't doubt it. If Jesus were to visit our church, my hope is that he would find a people enthralled with him, captivated by Christ. That's why we're in Mark's gospel, so that week after week we may stare into the beauty and the glory of his person and his works and just bask in it. Today we see him teaching with astonishing, alarming, disturbing authority. We see him confronting the demonic powers and they they tremble before him and flee. We see him laboring long into the night to relieve the suffering of a people ravaged by the curse, turning none away, lacking neither the compassion nor the power to heal. Are you not captivated by this man? Do you not love him? Jesus is the most compelling individual to ever walk the face of the earth, and he is just as alive and well and real today as he was then in the days of the flesh. In fact, he is more real now that he has been raised and ascended to the Father's right hand. Do you not love him? Do you not worship him? Are you not willing to bleed and die for him? If not, then I pray that God would open your eyes to his glory in this gospel. And if so, praise God, because that's why we're reading it. My Father, captivate us with Jesus. And I pray that all the miserable and the suffering and the sick those ravaged by the curse of sin would bring their weary, desperate, diseased souls to Jesus in order to be healed. And heal them, he will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.